0: Well, here we are in the thick of a new year, and as usual, new years bring along new beginnings and possibly new promises for things to come. So for those of you out there who happen to own a business, I want to tell you a little bit about FedEx Office. If you're just starting or have been running a company for, I don't know, years, generations, an eternity, FedEx Office gives you the best way to print marketing materials, posters, signage, graphics, and much, much more. With FedEx, creating, editing, saving, and ordering are fast and easy. Right now, we're teaming up with FedEx and PodGo to bring our listeners 30% off your next order of $100 or more at podgo.co slash FedEx. That's podgo.co slash FedEx for 30% off your next order. FedEx, the world on time. Oh, speaking of being on time, I'm
1: late for the show. And now, in spite of our better judgment, this is Teller Hell.
0: In May of 1992, a TV legend signed off for the last time. You people watching, I can only tell you that it has been an honor and a privilege come into your homes all these years and entertain you
2: and i hope and i find something that i want to do and i think you will like and come back that you'll be as gracious
0: inviting me into your home as you have been i bid you a very heartfelt good night with johnny carson's run on the tonight show coming to a close and a certain comedian with an obscenely large jaw taking over the following monday late night television suddenly found itself in a unique position Whereas one TV network seemingly had the game to itself for decades, other networks and syndication felt the time was right to stake their claims to the time slot after the late local news. While Carson's sign-off was the inevitable turning point, getting to that turning point would take some time, as well as a few contenders to the late-night throne. Some of them were worthy adversaries. While others didn't really have a chance.
1: All
2: here tonight on the Pat Sajak Show.
0: And when one of those adversaries wound up getting passed over for a position that was rightfully his, he made the faithful jump to another network, and that's when the first of the late night wars began to take place. I'm Dave. And I want to be your TV friend. Same Dave. Better time. New station. With the king of late night abdicating his throne, it was left to the next generation to fight for supremacy. Letterman. Leno. Conan. Arsenio. Chevy? Moon River. Thank you, Doc. You ever serve time? No trip through the worst of television would be complete without taking a look at a show that was meant to be the signature program of a young TV network. But instead of lighting the ratings on fire, the show turned into the late-night equivalent
1: of the Hindenburg, a blaze of a lack of glory that's surprisingly not as hot as the fires of tele
0: Good evening. This is the 10 o'clock news. I'm Steve Powers. And today, confirmation of the largest single broadcast station transaction in history. It's part of an even bigger deal involving more than $2 billion and the sale of seven Metro Media stations, including this one, Channel 5, to media mogul Rupert Murdoch. Contrary to popular belief, the Fox network may have premiered in April of 1987. But it was actually conceived in May of 1985 when Rupert Murdoch bought a chain of independent TV stations in an effort to turn them into the flagship affiliates of what would eventually become America's fourth broadcast network, if you don't count its forerunner, Dumont. By the spring of 1986 those affiliates went through a rigorous rebranding and unification process that would turn them from independent TV stations to the charter members of what was first known as the Fox Broadcasting Company, or FBC for short. From that spring to later on that fall, the affiliates would let its longtime audiences know that something new was on the horizon, even though it didn't really have much of a plan at that moment, save for what they thought was a blockbuster coup.
2: And now, ladies and gentlemen, Miss Joan Rivers!
0: When the yet-to-premiere 4th Network announced that it hired the legendary Joan Rivers to be the host of their first program, a late-night talk show, a number of seismic waves developed that garnered interest and ruined friendships. Now, because this is a story that's really too densely layered to tell here, We'll cut a long story short and say that while the Fox Network came out with guns blazing, the late show with Joan Rivers barely lasted a year, and through a series of mismanagements, bad timing, and even worse replacements, the young Fox Network realized that perhaps they bolted out of the gate too soon, and perhaps they needed to boost their primetime profile a little first before grabbing the bull by the horns in Late Night. And so they did from 1987 to about 1992. Slowly but surely, the Fox network made its presence known. Despite airing shows that the so-called traditional broadcast networks wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole, Fox actually managed to make a name for itself in its early years, not just as the network for young people, but one with a growing list of affiliates which, thanks to them originally being independent ones, was actually making more money on their syndicated rerun lineups than in prime time itself. Still though, the network didn't quite feel complete. Which brings us back to 1992, and Johnny Carson's retirement. As we mentioned, with the king of late night riding into the sunset, it would only be a matter of time until future suitors to the king's throne would rise as worthy successors. And with the other major networks and syndication planning their battle strategies for the future, the Fox network of the early 90s was in a unique position. Yes, it did have shows that gained notice from the entertainment industry, but the network was still so young and wounded from their Joan Rivers experiment that they hesitated to even hear the words Late Night ever again. And yet, at the same time, The network didn't want to be left in the dust in its infancy. They wanted to have something they could air all to themselves after the late local news. Something they would call their own. The question they would then ask themselves, who would be a big enough personality to put on five nights a week that was as much an alternative to the tried and true elsewhere, as he or she was also a beloved showbiz figure people would want to watch five nights a week? While we're not 100% certain on who else made the shortlist, One name that was seriously considered was the one and only Dolly Parton, who, in her own kind-hearted way, said no, but then also recommended the job to somebody else.
2: I'm looking over a four-leaf
0: clover that I overlooked before. Cornelius Crane Chase was born in 1943. And yes, that is his real name. The name Chevy was more of a nickname derived from various pieces of lineage on his grandmother's side of the family. Truth be told, I thought the name had something to do with the car or the town in Maryland, but I digress. The early years of Chevy's life took him to a number of points on the map. He did everything from various driving-related jobs to playing the drums for a music duo who would eventually become Steely Dan. Ultimately, however, Chevy would settle on a career in comedy, first as the co-creator of the underground sketch comedy troupe Channel 1 in the late 1960s, a troupe that would help spawn the cult classic comedy film The Groove Tube. Chevy then took his talents to the National Lampoon, where he and several other comedy touchstones worked together in various radio and stage shows for several years. Many of whom, including Chevy, would later go on to what would be the biggest big time of them all.
2: Live from New York, it's Saturday night!
0: Say what you will about him in this day and age, and Satan knows there's a lot to say. But were it not for Chevy Chase... Saturday Night Live wouldn't have the identity it would continue to have for 46 years and counting. For exactly one year and 20 days, even though there were six other very talented people working alongside him, it was he who was considered the breakout star of the show in its early days. So much so that he would wind up winning two Emmys for his efforts, one for acting and one for being one of the show's writers. Chevy's popularity reached such highs that various showbiz publications were only too eager to declare him the first true successor to Johnny Carson a mere 15 years before he would eventually retire. Incidentally, Carson himself would famously retort on Chevy's instant success that, quote, he couldn't ad-lib a fart out of a baked bean dinner. Chevy left SNL six episodes into its second season. Some say it was because he was given the chance for his star to rise elsewhere. Others say it was because of a relationship that didn't pan out. But no matter what the real reason was, his star continued to rise throughout the rest of the 70s and a chunk of the 80s with a string of comedy classics that all but cemented his star status. But as is the case with cement, there was bound to be a crack in the foundation sooner or later. By the time the 90s came... Chevy's movies ranged from dull to unwatchable, to say nothing of the many truthful rumors that cropped up over the years that painted Chevy in a less-than-flattering light. And yet, somehow, several decades after having a regular role on television, the Fox Network, once again at the suggestion of Dolly Parton, saw someone whose star went from being on the rise to descending into the twilight as the personality who would reignite the network's efforts in late night. At a reported price tag of $3 million a year, co-ownership of the show, and a theater to be renamed after him, Fox was ready to pull out every stop necessary to accommodate its new signature star. On that note, we're going to play a quick round of that old Sesame Street game, One of These Things is Not Like the Other. The game is self-explanatory, but I'll say it anyway. I'm going to play four things. One of them should not be with the other three. See if you can figure out which one it is. Here's sound number one. Sound two. I don't think so. (laughs) Homie don't play that. Sound three. It was every man's fantasy to be kept by a woman who's... Skirt is as short as the lifespan of the man that she chooses. <laughs> and sound four. We're all
2: gonna have so much fucking fun, we'll need plastic surgery to remove our goddamn spiles. You'll be whistling Symphony Doodah out of your assholes.
0: I don't think repeating the sounds are gonna be necessary here because we know that Chevy Chase on the Fox Network sticks out like a sore thumb in a set of thumb screws. We're gonna see just how much the original Not Ready for Primetime player tries to fit in with the young network.
1: After the break. <sighs>
2: You're canceled. How did you get canceled out of a commercial? You're not getting the ratings, Chevy. Uh, I like this stuff. Well, keep the bag, Chevy. Oh, well, You're a sport. Uh, you look great. Tough year.
0: Good chip. Doritos, tortilla thins, everything else is just a chip. Telehell is proud to partner up with Dave's Archives. Dave's Archives is the premier spot on YouTube where you can get your vintage TV fix, including old commercials and original shows covering classic TV and other TV-related pop culture. Here's just a small taste of what they have in store for you.
1: Good news today at the Ground Round. You get a whole lot more at the Ground Round. You get a whole lot more. What's the good news? (laughs) (laughs) USDA. Choice Top Sirloin Steak, just 3
0: dollars That's good news. And new Golden Fried Clams, also 3 dollars More good news. Try our Baked Lemon Butter scrod, just $3.99.
2: That is good news.
0: Steak, Clam scrod, just $3.99 each. And participating Ground lot, Round. round. At you get a whole lot Want to check out the rest of it? Go to YouTube and type in Dave's Archives. Or you can visit them on Facebook. Again, search Dave's Archives. And now, back to my punishment for the week. September 7th, 1993. Dream Lover by Mariah Carey was at the top of the music charts. The movie Rudy gave people of less than average height the hope to achieve anything. Even play football. And at 11pm, 10pm Central, the Fox Network's latest hope for late-night success is unveiled. As was the case with his last successful TV show nearly 20 years earlier, the show begins with an SNL-style cold-opening sketch. This involves a rather low-key interaction between Chevy and... a... hand... puppet. Or, rather, a... puppet of his hand... Uh, If you knew who Senior Wences was, it might make more sense to you, I'm sure. We find out that Chevy's hand puppet friend is a little nervous about opening night. Have you had anything to eat today? No. First night opening night jitters, huh? Yeah.
2: Well, you know, you really should eat something. Are you feverish? I don't think so. Well, let's check. A little bit warm. I think what you need is something to eat. No, I don't want to eat. My stomach is too nervous. I think what you need is a good tongue
0: sandwich. Now, given the benefit of the doubt, I'm just kidding because that first 20 seconds should have been enough to remove all doubt about this show and replace it with freshly minted doubt. I mean, if a hand puppet vomiting was going to be the way to usher in a show that could last for years... I can only imagine what they'll do for an encore. Thankfully, they try to save face in the first minute by showing off a unique clay-animated title sequence depicting a claymation Chevy stealing various bits and pieces of Hollywood landmarks so he can make a makeshift title card. Continued proof of a theory I've been working on since we reviewed Kondo, that really bad TV shows have really good or memorable title sequences in one way or another.
2: Tonight, not one, but two Academy Award-winning actresses. Goldie Hawn and
0: Whoopi Goldberg, Tom Scott and the MBZ Orchestra, and let's pause here for a sec. No show is complete without a decent house band. In Chevy's case, he recruited an old friend of his musician Tom Scott, who in addition to several dozen albums over the decades, actually managed to get his fair share of TV work under his belt, including writing the theme songs for Starsky and Hutch, The Streets of San Francisco, and Family Ties. Boy, what a mood swing. Uh, This also wouldn't be Scott's first talk show, having been the band leader on the aforementioned short-lived Pat Sajak show. But again, I digress. Anyway... The show's announcer introduces the band as Tom Scott and the MBC Orchestra. <clears throat> M as in what? Mancy. Why that name when there's neither an M, B, or C in F-O-X? S-T-F-U, okay? They would later be known as the Hollywood Express for the duration of the show's run. And now, he's still not ready for prime time. And now that we got that meaningless trivia out of the way, most hosts have what's known as their signature move to start the show. Carson had his golf swing, Arsenio would go, whoop, 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 and Conan would have his string dance. Chevy tried to do one better by having a basketball hoop on the set and see if he could make a successful shot. While the show's opening night features footage of a basket being made, chances are that shot was pre-taped, because in actuality, Chevy would never sink a basket during the run of the show. So, for those keeping track, we've got a vomiting hand puppet, a meaningless band name, and bad basketball kicking things off. So far, so good, I'm sure. Now comes the monologue, a ritual that, in addition to guest interviews, is usually the reason people tune in to a talk show in the first place. To watch someone of a preferably humorous demeanor try to ease the audience into a few minutes of laughter while putting the day's events in short review. A lot of people wondered why I wanted to do my own
2: TV show, and I confess I'm one of them. Uh, But I think the moment I knew I wanted to get back on TV was the day my daughters uh, tied
0: me up and made me watch Old Heavenly Dog twice. (laughs) Of course, that's on a regular night. This being an opening night, topicality is put aside for more humble words and getting rid of the opening night jitters. Everybody has them. So, in lieu of an actual monologue, we have a filmed piece where the theater Chevy is performing in, formerly known as the Aquarius on Sunset, is being renamed in his honor.
2: And with the authority vested in me as the honorary mayor of Hollywood, I hereby declare that when the champagne balloon hits this edifice... It will be officially named the Chevy Chase Theater.
0: Where do you want me to stand? (laughs) And to its credit, it's a decent bit of filler, if not meandering. But that's not quite the end of the bit. After a minor miscue, Chevy brings up one more piece of self-congratulations.
2: There's something else they wanted me to do out there. I wanted to say that live for tonight. Uh, and it's putting my hands and feet in cement, and that is the real proof that you've made it in Hollywood. And so I wanted to do a live here on the premiere of my show, and that's why I've asked the honorary mayor of Hollywood again, Johnny Grant, to come back tonight for the official ceremony. I know he's outside waiting with members of my staff, so I'm going to, you watch the monitors, and we're, let's not keep him waiting. Let's get out there.
0: Which would actually sound like a good setup to potential comedy if Chevy didn't have the enthusiasm of a snail race. I mean, this is your first episode. You gotta hype things up just a little better than a dull hush. Nevertheless, Chevy goes out into the street to take part in his concrete embalming, where hilarity ensues. Near the
2: there, yeah. And press your hands into the cement. Okay, right in here. Right in. There. I got, put my feet in there later. Yeah. Any anything you want to do. Okay. All right. Everybody ready?
0: So while we give credit for the classic cement is too thin gag to Chevy's obvious stunt double, we should also give credit for the most apt metaphor in a comedy gag, thin cement equaling a thin premise. After Chevy cleans himself up a little, we begin Act 2 with what the show generously calls a musical interlude. Though considering what we're about to hear, and see if you ever come across this show on YouTube, it's less interlude and more... Holy
1: fuck I want to rip out my I was blue and I was
2: always were
0: for those blessed to be blind the routine consists of Chevy and several of his staff's heads painted white and lip syncing to an old song from the 1940s against the black background simply put, try to picture albino potatoes with hair and teeth, and that's pretty much the extent of the bit. So, for those keeping track, we've got a vomiting hand puppet, a meaningless band name, bad basketball, and singing albino potato heads kicking things off. After watching that future life-and-death-long therapy session, we see Chevy at his desk. And in another bit of credit I'll give the show, at least the set looks both at-home and unconventional at the same time. You've got your typical talk-show trappings of having a variety of knickknacks around the set, but the centerpiece is the background, an aquarium full of fish swimming up against the L.A. skyline points for creativity because you really don't see that kind of stuff in a talk show. Nor do you see things like Chevy's Desk, which actually has a piano built into it. However, the fact that the only points we've given this show so far were for the show's title sequence, band, set, and not any of the show's content harkens back to this spiel that Jackie Gleason said in our first subject, You're in the Picture.
2: So I walked up to one of the stagehands and I said, uh, Charlie, how'd you like the show? (laughs) He said, boy, you look thin on a monitor. (laughs) (laughs) This is it, folks, when I say that.
0: The mere fact that minor technical work is better than the show itself is a bad sign, and we haven't even reached an interview yet. And, as we just said... Just as much as the monologue, people tune in to a talk show because of how the host will interact with the guest. And this being Chevy's first show, the smart thing to have done was to stack the guest list with some personal friends. Which he did. Please welcome the other woman of my life, Goldie Hawn. Yeah. Chevy's first guest was his co-star in the movies Foul Play and Seems Like Old Times, Goldie Hawn. On paper, this was a smart move. Have your first guest be someone you know significantly in an effort to ease whatever other jitters may get in the way on an opening night. Of course, that's a good idea on paper, which can crumple up so easily.
2: You know, we were were supposed to do this picture, and I never met you. And uh, I remember the door opened, and you were standing there, and I remembered how tall you were, and how handsome, and... uh, kind of amazed, you know, because I I didn't expect you to look like that or be that tall or that, you know, just, you know, virile.
0: While it seems as though Goldie is doing most of the talking, that's the problem. She's doing most of the talking on a show where someone else's name is in the damn title. And while Goldie is doing most of the heavy lifting, Chevy looks bored out of his skull, like he's wondering to himself if he's going through the TV equivalent of buyer's remorse. All the while, Chevy's boredom quickly turns into the audience's boredom. Surely he can make some kind of recovery, right?
2: You know, there's one moment I remember from uh, foul play that I'll never forget. I was very, very nervous doing the picture, uh, unlike tonight. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and uh, I remember, I don't know if you remember this time, but I said to you, I had a line in the movie, which was, you have the most beautiful blue eyes I've ever seen. Yeah. And your line was, they're green. I said it like this. You're know, the most beautiful blue eyes I've ever seen. My mouth shook. I mean, I was so nervous, and you just relaxed me and calmed me down. And I don't know what that injection was, but
0: it, it made all it made all it made all the difference. Swing and a miss. The fact that Chevy is basically telegraphing just how nervous he is by telling a story of how nervous he was on the set of foul play is almost enough for the snake to eat its own tail. Gonna try to relieve that snake bite with some ass kissing.
2: Oh gosh. Great time. Well,
0: time.
2: you still have that great face.
0: Damn it, we're losing it again. We've already tried ass-kissing. What else can we try?
2: I'd like to sing you a song. Me? Yeah.
1: Oh, no. Oh, no, 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 no. I don't care if you won an Oscar and gave birth to Kate Hudson. Just, please don't subject us to... Look at that
2: face. Just look at it. Look at that fabulous the first look I took at it. this was a face that the world adored.
1: I never thought I would say this both in my life and my afterlife, but I'd rather hear an infinite loop of Mia Farrow singing in The Last Unicorn. No. No, no, you know what? I, I take that back. I'd rather watch Pauly Shore's sitcom a second time.
2: Down Paris Go!
1: No, 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 no. I take that back. I would rather take the Wrath of Khan route and have a worm crawl into my ear and eat out my brain. At least that would be more pleasant than hearing Goldie Hawn singing ass-kissing song to Chevy Chase.
2: What I found.
0: Okay, time of death, 11.24 p.m. Eastern Time, just enough time to flip over to Letterman. But for those who are bigger masochists than Jack Nicholson and Bill Murray in both of their versions of Little Shop of Horrors, there's more of this to sit through, up to and including a national embarrassment of one of Goldie's children not named Kate.
2: September 7th, this
0: is his 17th birthday. Yes,
2: it is. Can, so, you, can, believe can that? you believe that? And I know he's here in the audience, too. I don't know if you know that, but he's right over there. Yeah.
0: And I just think we ought to...
2: Happy birthday, sweetie. Oh,
0: and random tangent for one second, because I know a tangent is far better than what I'm actually watching, but it should be noted that the Hudson in both Kate and Oliver Hudson happens to be that of musician Bill Hudson, Goldie Hawn's first husband and brother of Mark Hudson, who, coincidentally enough, was the band leader on the same program that launched the Fox network seven years earlier. The Late Show with Joan Rivers. Coincidence or Karmic Retribution? You be the judge. Unfortunately, the show isn't clever enough to come to a decision on either one of those things as Goldie and Chevy sing Happy Birthday to Ollie, while Ollie immediately plots faking his death while getting a new identity at the same time. During which, Chevy brings out a giant birthday cake, and upon bringing it to an unsuspecting Ollie, he accidentally drops it. A scene so ubiquitous in TV history that Family Guy would wind up using it over a decade later as one of their cutaway gags. Thanks, Satan, for useless trivia or else I'd go completely insane. Of course, that was a fake cake. A stagehand then gives Ollie the real cake. One that's so big that he's unable to get out of his chair while his mom and Chevy dance the way that most drunk people do at people's second weddings and implore the studio audience to do the same save for Ollie, who's still pinned to his chair with a giant cake. So, for those keeping track, we've got a vomiting hand puppet, a meaningless band name, bad basketball, singing albino potato heads, awkward musical numbers, and holding someone hostage on their birthday starting things off. Everybody, We can only blame what's been going on here on opening night jitters for so long. Surely, there has to be something about this show that can give people a reason to tune in. It's time now for News Update with our anchor Chevy Chase. Perfect! An homage to the very thing that made Chevy famous in the first place. Which, not for nothing, I'm kind of surprised they were able to blatantly rip off SNL's Weekend Update segment here. But then again, this is really no different than most talk show monologues anyway, telling jokes about the day's news. Perhaps this segment was put in due to how little of a monologue the actual opening monologue was, and it made more sense to do the actual topical humor here instead. Incidentally, they placed this segment about 35 minutes into the show because that's the exact time when all the other talk shows hit the air, which in terms of hindsight was as much a cunning plan as it was a highly saturated one in terms of choosing between three other shows at the same time. But who cares? As long as the jokes are funny... Maybe the show can redeem itself. The segment begins with a classic rehash of a bit that Chevy used to do on SNL. Talk to people on two different phones, only to use one of those phones to hang up on the other. Yes, the shows go pretty long, but I'll be home with for dinner. I love you, but you know
2: the president is on the phone. He wants to congratulate me? All right. I love you, honey. Hello, Mr. President.
0: (laughs) Tried and true, but at least that joke works. So, okay, one point there. And now, on to our top stories. But not without the sign-on that made Chevy famous as well. Good evening, I'm Chevy Chase. I said famous sign-on. Good evening, I'm Chevy Chase. Uh, where's the part where he says, and you're not? Good evening, I'm Chevy Chase.
1: Ooh.
0: That's unfortunate. Um, well, from what I can gather, Chevy was expecting the entire audience to respond with, and you're not. But the fact that only one lone audience member caught on may have been a sign that the rest of the audience was starting to become narcoleptic. Thankfully, audiences in future episodes were able to catch on, so for everybody's benefit, here's how that's supposed to be executed for real. Good evening, I'm Chevy Chase much
2: better. Now, on to the actual jokes. Uh, A lot of events have happened in the news since I've been away, uh, but some things never change. Our top story, General Francisco Franco, is still dead.
0: Okay, uh, another antique joke, but it's okay to ease the audience in with a couple signatures or two, that's fine. Now, let's get to something a little more up-to-date by 1993 standards.
2: And Filipino president uh, Fernand Marcos is still hanging on valiantly to remain dead. Marcos is not only the president of the Philippines, he was also a member of the Hair Club for Men.
0: Uh, okay. Props to them for being a little ballsy and showing off a dead dictator for the sake of making a bad hair joke, but is that really the way you want to start things off
2: while performing a concert in Singapore pop star Michael Jackson was taken by surprise when the audience spontaneously broke into song wishing him a happy 35th birthday before continuing his performance the singer was heard to say even though I just turned 35 I still feel like a 13 year old oh, no.
1: even for 1993 that's a rough one
2: and in the Middle East, This week, a major breakthrough. After months of negotiations, Israel has finally agreed to give the Palestinians a homeland. Unfortunately, it's Bosnia. Uh,
0: Let me amend that. Uh, Even for the Fox Network in 1993, that was a rough one.
2: The United States Marine Corps is embroiled in a controversy following the revelation that as many as 500 Marines at Camp Pendleton might have participated in a widespread gay pornography ring. As a result of the scandal, the Marines have adopted a new recruiting policy. Uh, Don't ask, don't tell, and don't bend over for the soap.
0: Okay, reading funny news jokes was the number one thing that made Chevy Chase famous in the first place. What gives with the low blows?
2: In addition, the slogan on the traditional Marine recruiting poster featuring Uncle Sam will now read, I want you, I want you now. What
1: the fuck, Chevy? There's coming in with guns blazing, and then there's coming in with a wrecking ball after cutting the ribbon on your grand opening. Please tone it down a little. In
2: other news, attorneys for the prosecution and defense continued arguments this week in the sensational L.A. riot beating trial, featuring Henry Kiki Watson, Damian Football-Williams, and Reginald
0: Pinata-Denny. <laughs> well, there goes one million viewers flocking over to Letterman. The Florida trial
2: of uh, two men accused of setting a black tourist on fire is being deliberated by the jury. If convicted, they face either a life sentence or a night in jail with cellmates Damien Football Williams <laughs> and Henry
0: Kiki Watson. And there goes another million viewers switching the channel to Nightline.
2: The Mattel Corporation has introduced a new addition to uh, its Barbie line, the Earring Magic Ken doll. <laughs> Despite the doll's purple vest, necklace, and frosted hair, Mattel insists the doll is not gay. Earring Ken could not be reached for comment. However, witnesses do report seeing him at Camp Pendleton posing for photos with G.I. Joe.
0: And there goes another million viewers looking for whatever channel airs Arsenio Hall. And finally, some sad news.
2: Services will be held tomorrow for the Ziploc Fingerman. who was tragically killed while auditioning as the new spokesman for Black & Decker Chainsaw.
0: And the remaining million viewers watching are left with a tough choice of either sticking around, watching a late-night infomercial on a new juicer, simply going to sleep, or turning on Leno in a fit of desperation to be entertained. Good afternoon, good night, and have
1: a present tomorrow. <sighs> so, for those keeping track, we've got a vomiting hand puppet, a meaningless band name, bad basketball, Singing albino potato heads, awkward musical numbers, holding someone hostage on their birthday, and a collection of borderline tasteless news jokes starting things off.
0: I mean, yikes those jokes. I know all the other talk shows were talking about the same things back then, but at least the other shows still had a sense of decorum when they did. Not every single one of them caused the audience to verbally reject them the way Chevy's audience did. And to put icing on the cake... One that's probably sitting in Oliver Hudson's lap, by the way. An entire two minutes of dead air disguised as Chevy awkwardly signing off the news update. A joke that I would complain about were it not for the fact that his fellow Channel One co-creator, Ken Shapiro, practically did the same thing in the groove too. So, I guess that counts as an homage, but barely. Please tell me there's a saving grace to be had here in addition to the set pieces. Coming up... October. Oh, thanks, Satan. My birthday twin has a guest, too. Uh, that's no joke, by the way. Whoopi and I do share the same birthday. Along with Gerard Butler, Chris Noth, and somebody who actually knows how to host a talk show, Jimmy Kimmel. If nothing else, at least you can count on Whoopi to lighten the mood, no matter how dire a situation may be. Whoopi starts by giving Chevy a housewarming gift. What? Oh, how sweet of you. Yeah,
2: I thought you like them. <laughs> stars that might be a little tight on you, but these are the shoes I danced in when my, when my, in the opening of my show, and I wanted to give you a good luck present. Of course, my show didn't do all that well, but this is my heart. Oh, that's it's not interested. true. Well,
0: no, no baby. Oh. Ignoring the superstition that putting shoes on a table is bad luck, the interview, surprisingly, goes off without a hitch, partly because of Whoopi's energy keeping both the studio audience and the viewers at home relatively awake. But at the same time, Chevy seems to realize just how big a mistake he's made about halfway through the show's maiden voyage. What are you doing with yourself now that your your show's uh, going the way mine is about to go?
2: <laughs> no, 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 see, now that's why I'm here. I'm here to tell you to, to put all that garbage out of your mind. You're yeah. gonna have the greatest time. People yeah. are gonna come out and say the dumbest stuff and floor you, and you're about to go on. I thought I was the guy that said the dumbest no, stuff. No, 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 they're gonna say
0: dumb
1: <laughs> stuff. And <laughs> yeah? all you can do is go. Just press on? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. I don't
0: really have to make eye contact. Quite honestly, there really is nothing to complain about in this segment. And it only took 45 minutes to accomplish. But Chevy is actually at ease for once during the segment. And he actually carries himself as an interviewer here. It's unfortunate, however, that the same level of ease fails to carry over during the rest of the show's run. To further add just how much of a saving grace Whoopi is to the episode, she even tries to reinstall some goodwill that Goldie Hawn squandered earlier.
2: People have been coming up to me of late, and people get excited, and it's nice, and I appreciate it. But they come up and they do this. Oh, Goldie, I just love you. I love you. I am you you're so nice, write nice Something. So I wrote. That's really yes. They, they, they come they... up and they call me Goldie one. Yeah. <laughs> you see this? Yeah. This is Whoopi. Whoopi is the colored girl, the African American, <laughs> the Negress.
0: So, with a little bit of face saved. Chevy wraps up his first episode with a few letters of luck from some VIPs.
2: Listen, I got to share a couple of, uh, of, of letters and, uh, of, of congratulations I got that are really. This is one from the White House. Dear Chevy, uh, Hillary and I wish I could be there, wish we could be there. We know you'll kill the competition. Congratulations fondly. Chelsea.
0: And on that much of a verbal pratfall, the first episode of The Chevy Chase Show came and went like a fart in a baked bean dinner. And while it would be unfair to measure the show's success and subsequent failings on just one episode, some critics couldn't wait long enough. And quite honestly, neither can we. Where does The Chevy Chase Show pratfall its way into telehell? The show may have lasted five fabulous weeks, according to Troy McClure. But that's nothing compared to the eternity it will spend in our nine
1: circles. Limbo, lust, gluttony, greed, wrath, heresy, violence, fraud, treachery...
0: Just about anybody who had access to a TV and a typewriter let the show have it with both barrels. Entertainment Weekly gave the show one of its rare F ratings, while Time Magazine stated that Chase, quote, tried everything and succeeded at nothing, end quote. Nothing that is, except wrath from those who were forced to watch it for a living. (coughs) Even more pissed off than TV critics were the advertisers who sacrificed some of their hard-earned billions on placing commercials anywhere near the show. The Fox network promised advertisers ratings of at least 6 million viewers a night, which may seem small by any standard in this day and age, but in 1993 for a late-night audience, that was a tall order to fill. The show ultimately hovered somewhere between 2 and 3 million viewers each night, and it was after the fourth week of the show that the writing was not only on the wall, but the same writing was probably smeared there. Chevy and Fox mutually agreed to cut their losses. Up to and including Chase's reported $3 million contract and several million dollars more in theater renovations. Money that could have been spent better, but the Fox network just had to have a show on in late night, no matter what the cost. And the greedy moves are often the worst planned ones to say nothing of the reported difference in opinion between Chevy and Fox executives who both wanted different visions for the show. Chevy wanted his show to be like the old Ernie Kovacs show from the 50s in terms of irreverence, while Fox wanted the show to be more cool and hip like Arsenio Hall's. So with Chase owning the show and Fox trying to control it, Fox gets the lion's share of the blame when it comes to treachery. Not to mention that clashing ideologies resulted in a show that felt like heresy to the traditional talk show format. But in the midst of all that went wrong, one undisputed fact remained. That Chevy Chase was a better actor than he was a talk show host. As evident by just how nervous and flop sweaty he was when he wasn't doing questionable news updates. He was so ill at ease that it wound up putting the audience ill at ease as well. The one thing you should never do when hosting a talk show. People like Carson, Letterman, Conan, Arsenio, and yes, even Leno managed to succeed at what they did because they felt comfortable doing it. The fact that Chevy couldn't do the same as any of his contemporaries made him look like a fraud among his peers. All of this the result of a show that began with... Say it with me now... A vomiting hand puppet, a meaningless band name, bad basketball, singing albino potato heads, awkward musical numbers, holding somebody hostage on their birthday tasteless news jokes a pair of shoes on a table a host who looked like he'd rather be anywhere else than doing a talk show starting things off and especially Dolly Parton saying no in the first place and boy did she dodge a bullet the Chevy Chase show earns five out of nine circles of telehell. The 29 episodes that it aired was enough for Fox to stay as far away from late night as possible, or at least in terms of talk shows. Just a few years later, the network would reset its sights on the weekend by unleashing Mad TV as a formidable opponent to the long-running SNL. But otherwise, the network gave the 11 p.m. hour back to its affiliates where late news and syndicated reruns helped reap the bulk of the network's profits to this day. As for the show's star... He later regretted ever taking on the challenge of a nightly TV program stating in no uncertain terms that he would never want that experience ever again. Afterwards, Chase continued to work in various projects, and would continue to evade all the questionable but not entirely untrue rumors of just how bad his reputation would become. In a 2018 interview with Amazon.com's Washington Post, Chase summed up both his career and continued bad reputation this way.
2: Look, you've shown me what other people have written over the years. It ain't too good. But look, I still did a lot of movies and I still could star in a show if I want. I still, you know, uh, I've gotten to a place where it doesn't really matter what people write or say, because it's only an instant of,
0: of, of an instant of my life. Well, as long as he's happy... Who's to complain? Next time on Telehell, the most important part of any football game, of course, are the commercials that air in between the action. And with a certain big game coming up, we take a look at some of the more infamous moments in football-related advertising. This is Timothy Hutton. The people of Tibet are in trouble. Their very culture is in jeopardy. But they still whip up an
1: amazing fish curry. Until then. If it's not in Telehell, it's not worth a damn. Telehel was
0: written, produced, edited, and narrated by me, Justin Hart. Not unlike certain viruses, Telehell is everywhere now. In addition to Stitcher, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts, we can also be heard on Google Podcasts and the iHeartRadio app. Of course, we can also be heard in a number of other places just by Googling Telehel.
1: And don't forget to like, comment, rate, subscribe, and follow our social feeds Twitter and Facebook, both at Telehel Podcast.